Rogue Radio. Now available on Mixcloud at mixcloud.com forward slash rogue country. Keep it rogue. Hey guys, what's going on? Today is of course brought to you by Rogue Country and Rogue Radio. Rogue Radio is back after a bit of a hiatus. I am doing some guest episodes and today's guest was on the first episode I dropped, Catherine the Great. Um, Go check out over on Mixcloud. I'm super proud of the show. I'm going to be doing a new one every two weeks so you can keep an eye on what songs I enjoy, what artists I'm loving and yeah, I'm hoping you enjoy it as much as I've been enjoying making them. This episode goes out on the 4th of May so me and Luke Hendrickson will have announced that we are doing a UK tour in April and May of 2022. I am so fucking excited for this tour. Like, I'm just so hyped. I haven't toured in ages. Obviously, no one has. I haven't done a decent UK tour since 2018. I haven't done like a good run of dates since then. So I'm absolutely hyped to be doing a full, huge UK tour. I'm so excited and I really hope you will get tickets. Uh, Sheffield, the tickets are available now for the Dorothy Pack. So you can head over to their website. I'll be dropping the link at the tour announcement post. And yeah. Luke Hendrickson is also crowdfunding for his new album over on Kickstarter, so head over to Luke's Facebook page, find that link, and go support his new record. It's all kicking off, guys. COVID only stopped us. It didn't, like, finish us off, and I'm so excited to get back on the road and see you all. So please get your tickets when you can. And yeah, I'm just... I'm going to keep saying how excited I am because it's an actual tour and something to look forward to. Today's episode is of course brought to you by the next life my debut record and i'm finally you know gonna be able to tour this fucking thing after just being able to share it online so you know come out to the tours if you want to hear the songs before we play them pick up a copy of the next life i'm going to drop in a teaser here now I'm super proud of this record. I've been saying on every episode of the podcast, so you'll know by now. But if you haven't picked up a copy, please do. Please keep supporting my music, and I will be seeing you on the road. Today's guest is the phenomenal Catherine the Great. I first saw her posted. We had Rachel from Adobe and Teardrops on this podcast, and she's been sharing Catherine's music. So I started finding it through that way, and it's so well written and so well performed and so much soul and so much heart that I had to sit down with Catherine she was uh, graceful enough and gracious enough to 
accept and sit down with me and talk songwriting, touring, the creative process, and so much more. And I'm absolutely happy and thrilled with this episode, and I hope you guys are too. So without further ado, let's do this. Episode 30 of Into the Van with Mike West and Catherine the Great. Welcome to Into the Van with me, Mike West. Cool, and we're rolling. So, just where about are you based at the moment? Uh, I am in Southwest Virginia, so the like the Blue Ridge Mountains. Oh, yeah. cool. And what was the music scene? Obviously, before the pandemic and everything, what was the music scene like there? Um, yeah. So I kind of got into like I moved here, not really knowing anybody, um, about six years ago. And I kind of got into it through playing bluegrass music and going mm. to jams and like joined a band for a little bit. Um, and so I kind of found sort of what was going on with songwriting and singer songwriters through that. But I think that influence of kind of the bluegrass jammy old time back mm. porch culture is definitely super prevalent, you know, um, mm. and something that I'm drawn to when I'm not playing my own stuff. I love sitting in on a jam and I think you can hear that in my guitar playing as well, that bluegrass rhythm. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm so jealous. Like um, my girlfriend showed me the notebook a few months back where they've got like the open porch sessions where everyone's playing yeah. and dancing and stuff. And I'm so jealous that like that has never existed in the UK. And like, I wish I had a front porch to do that on. But with Yeah, like, I think that's like kind of why um, Americana kind of culture, I think, is maybe a hit over mm, there. You know, With like, like just people like coming together and playing and stuff. But with the bluegrass stuff, was bluegrass kind of your first exposure to music? What made you pick up a guitar? Um, it actually wasn't, which is kind of funny because I grew up in East Tennessee, which is, you know, the same mountain range, the same culture in a lot of ways. And I always kind of rejected that, like mm. kind of bought into the stereotypes of hillbillies and stuff. And so like the first guitar I bought was like a Squire Stratocaster that my twin sister and I shared in seventh grade. And we had like an, like an emo band, like and we <laughs> wanted to play the warp tour, you know? So like <laughs> ninth grade me would like not care at all that like, I got to do the Merle Fest contest or whatever. She'd be like, that's lame. You're a sellout. Um, <laughs> but then then as we got older, um, A, we were like, if people aren't going to come to our shows, we're going to carry less heavy equipment. <laughs> so like drum kit and amps and stuff. Um, and then I think really like hearing folks like, like Patty Griffin mm. um, and that just really resonating and then moving backward from there. And so I feel like everyone who's kind of in the, you know, folky Americana avenue a lot of them are gonna list like patsy klein as a vocal influence and then going backward and really i've always loved dolly parton because i'm from east tennessee and then embracing more of her influences as well mm. um getting really into the carter family when i was 18 or 19 and then kind of like following those roots yeah it's weird so it took that, me a while to kind of come back to it yeah it's weird that it does seem to be like this kind of generation of folk and country artists where kind of punkier rockier you know picked up electrics first and played in rock bands and stuff but what obviously you want said about equipment and stuff, was there a specific artist like Patty Griffin or anything that made you like switch and sell your guitar and pick up an acoustical? Was it kind of, you see, like what, what I did was I was in a metal band for ages and then I realized that was kind of dead. It wasn't coming back and I still wanted to play live and I still wanted to write my own songs. And that was when I kind of found like the Johnny Cash American recordings and you know, Blind Willie Johnson, all that blues kind of stuff where it was one man and acoustic. What was your journey to kind of make that switch? Yeah, it was kind of funny because thinking back and, and so I played with my twin sister in a band um, and 
she was always kind of the dominant songwriter for the band, but I would like sing lead because I played guitar and it was mm. just easier that way. Um, and I had a lot of songs that we never used because they were kind of like intrinsically a folkier sound that didn't work for our instrumentation. So I think I always kind of had an ear to be a folk singer mm. and just, you know, we kind of like sort of made our way towards more of an acoustic ensemble. And, and by the end, it was like banjo and guitar when we were playing mm. together. Um, but now that we've kind of, we live in different places and have solo projects, like she's making that kind of indie pop music again, and I'm a folk singer. So it's kind of like we each had that distinct voice, but because we were playing together, mm. we compromised in different ways. That's so um, cool. Yeah. And like, we grew up listening to like the oldie station, you know, so like things like Fleetwood Mac or like even like Donovan, like... This, those formative influences that before you even know what they are, you mm. know, like early Beatles. I always love the the melodic structure there. Uh, see, um, I think um, what you found with like when you were younger, growing up with like bluegrass and stuff, and kind of being like anti it, because I'm from Liverpool where the yeah, Beatles are. Yeah, of course. I've I've never listened to them, and it's one of those things. Well, I I hate John Lennon, so um, <laughs> give me hate hate in the comments. But I think Paul McCartney is a brilliant pop songwriter. I'll give him that. Yeah. I am um, nearly got to see Paul McCartney live the other year. I had um, tickets for this thing, like to go to a TV show in Liverpool that they were filming and it fell through. And because it fell through, they went, oh, if you get to this pub on this date and you, there's space, you can go watch someone oh, wow. playing. And they didn't, they wouldn't tell you who it was or anything. And I thought it was Taylor Swift. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a bigger Taylor Swift fan than I'm a Paul McCartney fan. But I was like, oh, it might be here because she was playing like, the arena like down the road so i was like oh that'd be cool so we went to the pub and we were like three people back from getting in so we didn't get to go in and it turned out it was paul mccartney doing this set oh, in this old pub bummer. like next to the philharmonic but i've never really got the beatles and i understand there's a lot of like john lennon hate and it's it's weird because you have all well he these, was like, a domestic abuser so i think yeah. it's valid to, so you, know. you have all these like icons and obviously with kind of the modern movement of people being called out for their sins you have like bowie and people like that and jimmy page and it's interesting to see how those icons are looked at in a new light and held accountable for those things which they should be yeah yeah i mean the way i think about it is you know there there are so many people that weren't given those opportunities you know and given that airtime so i'm happy to hold them to account and kind of give that space to maybe more marginalized folks yeah you know? no definitely and i've never really been able to like separate art from artists especially sure. in terms of songwriting and things where it's such a personal thing that you can't really separate them because it's who they are led to those type of things yeah i mean and, and i definitely think we have to give people grace to grow and and atone for what they've done but you know there's also yeah being honest about it is important too yeah um yeah, as far as, like, you know, what really inspired me to kind of go acoustic, I would definitely say, like, honestly, um, <laughs> this might, like, be a little cringe now, but the, the artist I heard when I was, like, 16 or 17 that, that really made me want to kind of move acoustically, I think was, like, Missy Higgins. I don't know if you remember, like, her first couple of records. She's Australian. No. And she had a couple kind of, like, I don't know, like, indie radio hits mm. where, where I was living. Um, yeah, and I just, it was like kind of poppy, but still acoustic guitar. And that was kind of, I think what started for me. And then like Brandy Carlisle, like around that time she was, you know, kind of mm. blown up the first time. 
which yeah. um, I listened to Rachel on your podcast, and, <laughs> and I totally agreed with what she was saying about Brandi Carlisle, and it's kind of why I'm, like, not as big of a fan now, but when I was, like, 17 or 18, seeing her and the twins live, like, doing an acoustic set, I was like, oh, like, I could do that. Yeah. Like, in a way that felt really, it felt aspirational, but it felt attainable in a way that was really inspiring. Yeah, that's the really tra- interesting thing, and I think acoustic like writers and acoustic artists it seems more attainable than like you know i'm a huge kiss fan which seems a million miles away from yeah. you know reality because it's all the pyro it's all the like wall of amps and things but someone up on a stage with a guitar just singing seems so attainable and i think that it kind of that influence and that inspiration is really kind of underplayed because you always see like you know Jimi hendrix as the guitar god or whoever made everyone pick it up but also you see like Kirk Cobain with an acoustic guitar and that probably launched a lot more people as well in terms of being wanting to play yeah and I don't know if like Guitar Center is a thing in the UK but um as someone you know like being read as a woman and going into a guitar store especially if you're playing electric guitar you can go in knowing exactly what you want being like I want this particular boss distortion pedal because I'm playing a rock band and I want that sound and they'll just be on like are you sure that's what you want? You know, like, mm. and so I think I also just got tired of like dealing with like men being jerks about gear, you know? Yeah. And so if I show up with an acoustic guitar, I can immediately show you that I know how to play it mm. and then kind of shut up, you yeah. know? No, definitely. I can't stand those gear talks. Like I've yeah. never. I mean, I, lo- I, I, I love to geek out about gear and sound stuff. Um, and I was a trumpet player in school and it was, there was a thing there like, well, this new fancy mouthpiece made me, no, you got to just be a good player and a good musician. Like, mm. the gear's fun, but it's, yeah. And I feel that way about guitars, where, like, you know, you'll meet someone with, like, a $10,000 guitar, and they can play, like, two chords. Like, okay, yeah. what's it for? Yeah, I always kind of get annoyed when you see, like, an opening band or something, they're all kids, but they've got, like, top-of-the-line Gibsons. And it's just, like, I know that was bought for you, and I know you're trying your best, but really? like Yeah, I always kind of had a chip, chip on my shoulder about that, like, yeah. playing, playing off-brand or playing an Epiphone or, yeah. But what's your um, main guitar that you use now? Because on um, Personhood and um, Jigsaw Puzzles, you, the guitar tone this is on that's a, killer. Yeah, um, I love this guitar. It's it's um it's a Blue Ridge uh, BG160, which is basically their Gibson um, J45 knockoff, but it's like a slope shoulder dreadnought. Mm. Um, I think I've got... I can't remember what strings I was playing at the time of Personhood, but I use that same guitar on both albums. And I've got... Um, Oh gosh, the nickel bronze strings, mm. the Diodario. Um, yeah, and I really like it. Finger picks well, it flat picks great. Um, yeah, and then I use um, a couple of different electric guitars on the record sometimes. But that's mm. the you know that's my workhorse that I use for pretty much every live gig. Yeah. Every time I'm tracking. Yeah, mm. it's a great little guitar. It's kind of a you know a little bit of a knockoff. I bought it with like a broken, repaired neck, so <laughs> you know. It was already scratched up, so I didn't worry about it, but we've done some fun things, me and that guitar. Yeah, that guitar tone on those records was so, like, it's got, like, a depth and a warmth to it. That was one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was what guitar you were Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's uh, Rosewood and Mahogany are the two primary woods there, but yeah, yeah, I love that little guitar. Um, Hopefully it stays with me for a long time uh, until Mm. I can afford something nicer but for what it is it's great yeah. and with like coming up with like those bluegrass sessions and stuff did that kind of hone your acoustic playing and things is like did you learn anything particular from those yeah i mean i had played guitar for a while um like 
probably 10 years before kind of moving to Virginia and trying that style. And I really only knew like, you know, some Carter family songs and basic rhythm. And it was really baptism by fire because I ended up playing with this family of just like virtuosic bluegrass musicians on every instrument, like mandolin world champion. And I would literally just like steal riffs from them, you know, like play along, make my wrists sore, trying to keep up with the speed that they just play things at and then slowly incorporate. Um, so now I feel, you know, pretty comfortable taking a solo riff or, or something like that. Um, and I feel like my timing's pretty solid as a result. So it was definitely, yeah, I, I used the phrase baptism by fire because I was hanging on by the seat of my pants for like a year there. Um, yeah, and we kind of like, it was kind of organic in that they sort of stopped calling me for gigs. And at the time I was kind of like annoyed. And then I realized in retrospect, like that opened up, you know, all this space for me to start writing again and playing my songs. And then I've gotten to do so many cool things since then. So it was really kind of a blessing. Yeah. Cool. And with that space opening up, was it that kind of perfectly timed with ideas for songs or had you written songs before then and were kind of waiting for the opportunity to go try them out? Yeah, I mean, I so I wrote songs, you know, with my sister for a while mm. and as we were sort of like parting ways um, at the end of college, like we just took jobs in different places and kind of struck out on our own. Um, I had all these songs that kind of didn't have a home and I just didn't play them for anyone, you know, so I kind of had a back catalog and then started pushing myself um and playing solo is so scary when mm. you've been part of a duo because like my twin is kind of the extrovert you know like she's kind of the the personality so like the hard part wasn't really the songs themselves it was like learning to talk on stage mm. i yeah. don't know if you deal with that like playing solo gigs where you're just like i guess i talk now <laughs> yeah i remember like when i first before i even started in like abandoned things i wanted to be in a band really badly i wanted to like sing and stuff but i had crippling stage fright where I couldn't even like speak on stage or speak in front of large groups or anything and it was a really weird twist when I think I had to band and there was like three other people with me that kind of let me come out my shell but then with yeah. the metal thing it's still like a front it's still posture and it's still it's not really me so the weirdest thing for like this was to then be open and honest and actually talk on stage and stuff but one of the things I really enjoy I'm a, like a big stand-up fan and I loved like sure. when it came like Dave Chappelle or someone like they let things breathe on stage like they'll like they don't have to fill every space with talking so I, I sometimes try and approach it as if I as like I'm obviously not but if as if I was a stand-up comic where it's like I get to say things and kind of let it breathe I don't I'm like I'm comfortable with like silence now which is handy when there's like three people at a show <laughs> yeah I never thought about the silencing. I'm a huge fan of stand-up, I think partly because it, it seems so magical to me because I just feel like that's not a skill set mm. I have. Like music, I can wrap my head around it, even if someone's, you know, very different from me or, or really remarkably talented, like I get it. Stand-up, I'm like, that's magic. <laughs> but yeah, um, I have to deal with a lot of a lot of quiet in my day job. I think that's helped me a lot with anxiety too, just like, again, letting that silence say what it needs to say for sure. Yeah, because that's, I think especially obviously you came from like the same like indie rock background where everything has to be like hard and fast and everything has to move and when you switch to acoustic to let things breathe is like a scary skill in and of itself because it's like you know in a metal band you can let a chord ring but there'll still be something filling that sounds well in an acoustic if you let that chord ring it's you've let that ring and that has to resonate with people and it's the same thing for, you know if i'm talking about a song beforehand it has to have that same like depth or weight to it where you have to let it breathe otherwise people may miss what you said or you know mishear it or take it in a different context so i think 
especially because I talk about like hometown stuff or y'all go on a political rant. I never want to be misconstrued. So I always have to make sure that I talk slow and I probably, I have to make sure that I talk slow. Cause I remember I did a gig for a live stream the other week and I was talking so fast. I had to like literally take a step back. And I literally thought of like Dave Chappelle and was like, let's begin again. And like, take that step back. Yeah. That's like, I've had to learn to work with kids and that's like always been my number one hurdle. It's just like, you got to speak slow enough that they can process what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the intimacy, you know, the intimacy of that, it's like, it's, it's at times more terrifying to kind of learn how to do like as a solo mm. performer or folk singer. But I think on the other hand, the rewards are so much greater. Like you talk to folks after the show and they feel like they know you and they do because yeah. you've shared, you know, you shared so much. And just by st- sharing that experience, like you kind of know them too. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, that's um, one thing I learned recently, like him last year, because I was on tour with him, Amigo the Devil, who's got a really like honest terms of songwriting, and his fans are rabidly loyal and hang off like every word he says, but he's so brutally honest in like his depression or his viewpoints and things. And it was, I was looking at him and being like, how do I open myself up in a way that's not necessarily gimmicky or I don't want to like lean on something for the sake of leaning on something? well, how do I just be honest about these songs or how I'm feeling at the moment? And that's been a really interesting thing. And that has been people come up to you after shows and go, me too, or, oh my God, like I felt the exact same way. And that's been a really interesting thing as a songwriter. Yeah. Yeah, it's led to some really, really lovely conversations. And I'm always super grateful for people for, you know, sharing back. Like, mm. It's really special. Yeah, but with, in terms of your songwriting with, um, like personhood did you have anything in mind when you were approaching that because obviously you had a back catalog song you'd written with your sister and stuff had did you come in with any new songs for that or was there an approach where it was like I don't have a duo anymore so I want to make this a personal record yeah well and even when I played with my sister we always wrote independently we never co-wrote so mm. they were all solo compositions it was just not writing with the ear towards arranging and just the way that one turned out, you know, it was just solo live takes, mm. um, tracking everything at once, trying to get that performance. And um, part of it was just because I felt like I needed something after having not made a record for like three or four years at that point. Mm. Um, but it did, I felt like thematically it kind of came together. Um, there's one track on there, Orlando, that was, um, I wrote the morning that we got the news about the pole shooting mm. um, in Orlando, Florida. And it was just like a really raw depiction of grief and anger and um, a couple songs like that that were more recent. Um, Simple piece of paper I wrote um, after, I don't know if it was news over there, but there was this woman called Kim Davis in Rowan County, Kentucky, who refused to like sign um, same gender marriage certificates. Like, so we had, um, so we had the Supreme Court decision, like, uh, finally legalizing uh marriage equality like across the united Mm. states and at the the job i was working at the time some woman was like you know good for her for standing in her truth or whatever and i didn't react in the moment but i went home and wrote a song about it which i think most songwriters can can deal with so as like a queer person just like trying to express you know like the humanity behind Mm. the other side um for someone who had that like religious fundamentalism um, and I'm pretty sure that woman bought a copy of my record later. So, <laughs> but um, 
yeah, so there are a few songs that were clearly inspired by events that were happening. Um, Prefabricated, I wrote, like, around the time or before the 2016 election, just kind of writing about sort of the lies that conservatives have have tried to sell, Mm. you know, Um, and trying to kind of tap into, I guess, like, at the end of the day, we're all human and we're all suffering. So what's, what's there? And that kind of felt like a, yeah, a common thread to that record. It really felt like just like, I don't know, kind of going out my own independently, like kind of without my family for the first time in this new to me culture that was at times very familiar and at times like very different, Mm. just this very specific culture where I live now um, and exploring that. So there's, yeah, some of the songs were older, like there was one about my grandmother, but it was really just like learning to find my own voice Mm. feels like that that's what that album was was there a particular song on there obviously you talk about the election and different like events but was there a song where you kind of honed in and felt that that was the first or best time that it encapsulated your voice um i don't know i think the song that i always talk about with that album is tomatoes just because that was the one that that won at merle fest and kind of made people i guess like it was validating that I was doing okay on my own. Um, but that was also, I think, probably the least personal song on that record. Mm. So so to me, that song feels like kind of where my craft was solidified, although it wasn't autobiographical, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think as far as, like, I don't know, the one of the ones that I'm, I'm probably most, like, just personally fond of on that record is called um, I Know... Mm. And it was just, you know, a song I wrote, I think I wrote it kind of as an apology at the time, but um, it's one that always feels true to sing and feels very much like a little autobiographical and like kind of reflecting on just my childhood to the person I am now and how relationships and love have kind of helped me grow into that, you know, so Mm. I'm grateful for that song and grateful that it still feels true, I guess. Yeah. No, I I made a note of I Am, I know, because that felt like almost like a prequel or you know a tease to what would be like the song be your own dad and was that yeah yeah that's an interesting connection um yeah they're both i think they're both so i would say that i i know is more um kind of standing in the like the joy of growing out of maybe Mm. like an unhappy childhood and sort of creating my own family whatever that looks like um whereas be your own dad was more like i never expressed that to him Mm. So kind of expressing, like, both really acknowledging the harm and pain there, but also I think, like, I'm glad you pointed that out because I think people think Be Your Own Dad is a sad song, or that's a word that gets used a lot. Mm. And I think there is also, like, sort of a defiant joy there as well, that, like, even if, you know, the roots I was given didn't grow into a tree, I was able to replant elsewhere and, like, make something beautiful. No, definitely. I think I saw you post a while ago about how, it's not necessarily sad songs it's emotional songs and people get confused yeah. or like they misinterpret something as you know it's emotional so it's sad it doesn't have to be sad it's emotional like i always i viewed be your own dad it broke my heart when i first heard it but it was because i can relate to so many people i know that have gone through the same thing and to see them become stronger through it it's not necessarily sad but it's it's moving yeah yeah yeah, and it's like, you know, when I think about, like, what what do I cry at movies and commercials and other music, it's it's never, like, pure sorrow, you know? It's it's 
feeling deeply human and feeling deeply connected to other people even. So yeah, that connection, I think. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we kind of have a discomfort with, with emotions that are uneasy and, mm. and label them with, with broad brushes as sad or mad or bad, um, which can be helpful to, to narrow it down. But yeah, I think sad is so like, I don't know, not lazy, but it's so limiting for all the things that we can feel and think about, you know, especially yeah. with songwriting. I'm never like, I'm sad, I'm going to write a song. It's like, there's a very particular experience that I want to capture. Yeah, I think that's, it's an interesting thing. And I think as songwriters, you kind of have to look beyond sad. But if you aren't in that kind of, because sometimes I have to stop myself because I'll start feeling, you know, sad or run down or, you know, just like morose. And I'll start thinking of lyrics or something and I'm like shut the fuck up I just need to feel this for now I have to kind of take that analytical step back to just be in that moment and feel that way but I think as songwriters or as like you know any poets or artists you take those emotions and you find a way to fit them together to express yourself and move through it while if you don't necessarily have that thought process you do just see something as oh he made this because he's sad like a lot of like Vincent van Gogh's stuff could be just seen as, you know, depression instead of him trying to like heal through it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love what you said about giving yourself space. I think I did that subconsciously. Like I, I wrote a song about my grandmother five years after she died, you know, like I needed that time to work through it. And then she just came to me one, one day. Um, and yeah, I also think, you know, what you said about van Gogh and everything, like I definitely don't buy into the, the like tortured artist myth. No. You know, I don't think that we we need to like neglect our well being to write at all. Um, there's so much to mine from, and and I think that that's why I'm also maybe particular about the sad thing because like I've worked very hard to work through my stuff so that I can feel like a, if not always happy person, a pretty grounded person. Mm. Um, yeah, and songwriting is part of that to like create those containers for it, um, so that we can experience that without it being overwhelming. Mm. No, definitely. I think because that's what I always try and do is like, as I kind of approach stuff with like a songwriter or critical analysis, I always want to try and get to the root of something. So it's not just I'm sad, it's I'm sad because and then dig deeper into that. And there's a lot of it is an uncomfortable truth when you have to kind of face what's actually making you sad or what's making you depressed or angry or, you know, whether it's like you're in a relationship or you just stressed about something else but you're just in a state of denial and it is an uncomfortable thing i think and that's i think like your record jigsaw puzzles and wine was a really good example of someone who's not writing sad songs they're reflective and emotive and they want you to question why you feel that way i think from like what i've heard of your music yeah i love that that's super flattering thank you yeah i always talk about when i'm talking about songwriting um thinking about just planting seeds you know and letting them germinate and sometimes that looks like a hook and sometimes it's a theme and sometimes it's just a feeling mm-hmm. um yeah I had a I had a supervisor in my music therapy internship who like taught me to be really comfortable with my clients crying because mm. I was working in hospice so there's there's a lot of tears around that but also to like acknowledge that like crying is always a good thing in life in the therapeutic space that and that those tears have something to say you know and that like we had the catchphrase like there are no bad tears um 
which I've attempted to put into a song for years and it's never quite worked. So maybe yeah. someday, but, but that's, it's what I kind of hold on to, like with either, you know, as a performer, like if people are telling me my songs made them cry, I'm like, well, that's a good thing. What were those tears saying for you? There was something that needed to be released. So I'm grateful I can make that happen, you know, mm. instead of being like, oh, I made you sad. It's more than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like with obviously your songs, what was kind of the reaction when you first started playing live with, you know, your solo, like original stuff? Yeah, um, so kind of my first solo stuff was, like, these weird little, like, competitions locally. <laughs> like, there was one called, um, Smith Mountain Lake Idol, which was just, like, Smith Mountain Lake is kind of, like, a, like, vacation community, like, mm. in my county. Like, there's a lot of, like, retirees and stuff. Um, and so, like, I did that and ended up winning, and then it was, like, a year later I was at Merle Fest, you know? So it was just kind mm. of, like, this kind of goofy thing playing for a bunch of like drunk republicans but <laughs> it was validating in its way uh, but i met some really good people there are some some real people in the competition um but like the people we were playing at like a restaurant you know for like a bunch of like i don't know transplant retirees at a lake like mm. um and it took me it took me a hot minute to kind of figure out like um i'd say roanoke is probably the like closest kind of bigger town and the songwriter scene there so yeah it felt like a lot of kind of stumbling because I wasn't in a place like I went to school in Athens, Georgia, which mm. I'm sure you've probably heard of the music scene there. Like it's pretty legendary. It's a college town. And it took it took us a minute to find like our specific niche, but there is also Eddie's Attic in Atlanta, like this clear folk scene. Mm. Um so where I am now, yeah, it was it was a lot of kind of fumbling. <laughs> um but I think in some ways that was that was good because it was like kind of cutting my teeth sometimes playing in places where people weren't really listening or didn't really care mm. um which makes you have to be really clear about what it is you're doing and why you're doing it and then when you get to go to those you know amazing things like rocky mountain folks fest or merle fest like and people are there for the music and they love songwriting then you recognize like what a privilege that really is cool and with merle fest so you did the songwriting competition there were you on the festival as well how did that it's I just like, know. so there, there's like a, the competition is like Friday afternoon and then there's like four categories and the winners we got to like play like on the main stage, like Friday night, like during mm. a break. So you're like on the big jumbotron and like, yeah, I, I mean, it was neat. I got to see the festival for free. So that was cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And like with all that experiences, did that lead into Jigsaws? Because I kind of felt that that was a road record and some ways with like what you make running out and like out of town or it felt like those experiences really impacted you for the next record yeah it's not i i don't really tour a lot like mm. i'll do short runs especially um like i play in some other bands or as like a side man side person if you will um i don't tour as much by myself just because i don't want to especially <laughs> um but i think it was yeah it was definitely influenced by kind of travel and growing and sort of the metaphor of that um what you make actually I'll, I'll tell you the story behind that was actually inspired by the worst audience i've ever been a part of um so uh i don't know if you listen to shovels and rope at all mm. they're one of my like favorite live bands to see like i just think live they have something really special um and i've seen them a couple times and it's always been great and we had tickets to see them um in lynchburg which is kind of a town on the other side of me and Lynchburg is probably best known for Liberty University, which is, like, super fundamentalist. Like, mm. it's just kind of this, like, I don't know, hyper right-wing 
I just think of it as not being a particularly generous place because of the big university there and its ethics. Mm -hmm. But we went to see them there and it was just like this packed crowd full of people just talking the whole time. Like you could tell they were getting ready to play a soft song on the set and they just canceled it and did something else. Like they just like, you know, basically turned it into a rock show because that was all they could do. Um, And I just remember being like, these folks are so successful. They've made it in every measure in the Americana world. And they played a sold-out show, basically, which should be great. And yet it was an... I could tell just by being close to the stage that that it was an awful experience for both of us, mm-hmm. you know? So it's kind of... That song was just kind of like... Even when you're successful, like, there's still a mountain of trash sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's a really weird one. I saw um, Hosier. Mm. Um, I'm, I love his first record. I really like his EP with like Mavis Staples and stuff. And I remember yeah. I saw him just as he broke in Liverpool, and it was amazing. And then he came back after his EP, and we saw him in this huge venue in Manchester, and everyone just fucking talked through the entire event. Right. And I it's can't. Like, what does that success mean? Yeah. So then I'm kind of like, if someone makes it, I don't want to go see them live anymore because I know the crowd are there to just hear, take me to church. And then just talk the entire way through. So it's all those acoustic, like slow, soft songs you just can't pay attention to. And it's heartbreaking to see when someone attains like a level of success or, you know, a fan base. For then that fan base to turn around and shit on it. It was a really weird thing. And that makes sense with that what you make song because you have like him, you could play a recording for free or for cheap. So it's like, so why am I here to have to deal with this? And I've like on a smaller, smaller scale, I've dealt with that in like gigs. Yeah, I mean that's yeah that versus definitely like bar gigs and that kind of thing where it's just like you're playing to people that are like they want to be seen at live music, but they don't care about the music itself. Yeah, like um, that's um I've stopped playing any festival that has insert town name here live because it's just people who wanting to get drunk in the street and they aren't there for the music, so I just don't play them anymore. The last two festivals I had to play of a town name live, I had to tell the bar to switch the overhead music off while I was playing. Yeah, I've had to do that a few times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's humbling, but it's definitely... I, I always think about that, that Gillian Welch lyric and everything is free. You know, like, if it's something that you want to sing, you can sing it yourself. Yeah. Like, and this year especially, I think, has made a lot of us reconsider, like, why do we make music? Who is it for? Is it any less valuable if I'm just writing songs and singing them to my dog as opposed mm. to, like trying to quote unquote make it you know and it, it t- definitely ties into like critiques of capitalism too you know yeah <laughs> yeah it's a hard one like i've got um, a friend who's a country singer and i've been like obviously i got a gig booked this week so i was like oh i've got a gig and he was like i don't know if i can be asked ever doing a live show again and he just can't see that value to it at the moment just because it's been so long he's just like i can't really be asked traveling I can do it through yeah. Zoom. Like, and it is one of those things where it's like, well, what are you actually performing for? Mm-hmm. And now thinking about like, who are the people who would come to a live music event right now? Mm. You know, um, I, I don't think they're necessarily like the target audience you want anyways, as far as listeners, because I think of those people as being more concerned about other people. So they're going to stay home. Mm. Yeah. Especially now with like, live shows like over in the uk we all our pubs and everything are closed so there's zero live music and zero gatherings and stuff but when it starts coming back it's going to be interesting to see when outdoor shows start coming back and things and kind of what is because i see a lot of people going 
I'd go to watch, you know, ABBA or someone like they can't stand and to just just to go out and watch something. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't really want to be playing a gig if someone's just there because it's a chance to go out and get hammered. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. I've been wanting to kind of be more intentional about what I play for a while. So there have been certain gigs that have fallen away where I'm just like, this is kind of a blessing, you know? Mm. It felt, it, sometimes it just feels like it's hard and for what? Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's definitely a thing. And that's why I've, I've cut out like all pub gigs out of like my shows and stuff. I just don't play them because I don't enjoy them. And the crowd's not anything I'm really interested in doing. I'm mm. not playing any Weatherspoons and stuff. But it is a weird one to where it's like what am i doing this for but with kind of do you have future plans for gigs and so obviously you haven't toured much is there a reason behind you not really want to tour well i actually had like for 2020 um was planning to do like a a duo run um in the uk and um maybe do some like east coast stuff just traveling a little bit more um with another songwriter but yeah, I think part of it is just with, with my day job when that's been more consistent. Mm. Um, historically, I've been able to travel more in the summer. Um, but yeah, I think this this year just kind of made me like not even want to plan, you know? Mm. Um, but I, I like to do like short runs, you know, of a week or two, but not necessarily like on the road all the time. Yeah. Just because I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a homebody um, and I really like routine and I get kind of like overstimulated by a lot of like big crowds and stuff like if i'm at a festival like i'll try and see who i really want and then make Mm. sure i have like decompression time it's not my scene just because of how my brain works Mm. um yeah so i was i was hoping to you know in 2020 um do a little bit more like focus gigging um and yeah it's just kind of exhausting to talk about this being like oh that didn't happen yeah um but I do, like, I really enjoy um, either, like, doing, a like, a consistent bill with somebody else, like, trading songs, like, an in the round or swapping mm. back and forth, you know, playing on each other's stuff. Um, or, like, I, I do play in a couple bands, like, locally, or did. Um, and it just feels easier to be on the road with other people. Like, yeah. I've never wanted to really travel extensively for a long time by myself. Mm. Um, with, like, UK dates and stuff, who are you meant to be coming over with, or...? Uh, yeah, so, um, Amy Andrews has been over a couple times by herself mm. doing different gigs, and so I, I produce her records and play on them, so, um, either just playing, like, in her band or smaller gigs, like, swapping, so that was kind of yeah. our eventual plan, so it might happen again. Oh, amazing. Well, I really hope you come over to the UK, because I'd love, love, yeah. love to see one of your shows, but that is one of the things where it's, it's bittersweet to talk about tours and things that could have been, especially, like, in the uk we we've had brexit so the whole of europe's shot oh enough. yeah so i have no idea what i'm actually going to do in terms of touring for a while because it's so up in the air in terms of just doing mm-hmm. the uk or like you'll have to actually get visas to go over to mainland europe yeah instead of like last time it was literally i just drove down in my van got a ferry and then carried on as normal with like no impediment but who knows what's going to be the future for that now yeah well but um, with, like, um, I wanted to talk about your SoundCloud and stuff because you released a demo through that, which is uh, Some Falls. 
what TV show, what, like, was that inspired by? Yeah, um, so I, I watched a lot of TV in the pandemic, like, like everybody else. Um, and one of the shows I really liked um, was Dead to Me on Netflix. I don't know if you've, mm. you've seen it. Yeah, so, like, the main character, like, basically hits a guy in the back of the head with a bird, right, that kills him. Um, and I was just thinking about that character and kind of, like, thinking about, like, in folk music how there are so many murder ballads where um, women get killed by men. Mm. So it's kind of a prime opportunity to, to flip that script and, like, murder an abusive man in a song. Yeah, um, yeah so that was basically the... I was just, you know, playing around in Drop D, and the song kind of happened, and I dug it, and I sent it to some friends, and they are like, oh, this is cool. So I was like, I'll, I'll post it and not tell people exactly what it's about. And nice. see what they think so yeah i don't know if i owe like liz Feldman credit for that or whatever but <laughs> i'm not monetizing it right now so just a little like yeah. musical fan fiction i guess <laughs> nice. i do write a lot of songs like kind of from like random characters or whatever in fiction i don't know if you do that at all i've written one i've never released it but i've done one from frankenstein's point of view after he fell from the windmill oh nice okay <laughs> i, was I think like, that's, that's public domain now right so. yeah as like a bridge between the first Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, that song fits into that part. And I just wrote it, just, I had like this idea and I'm obsessed with Universal Monster films and I just had them on repeat loads where so, like before him, I moved on and met my partner and stuff. I'd literally just sit in my room and watch a Universal Monster movie while playing guitar and just like running shapes and stuff. But I've got that. And then a, a lot of things are based on books and stuff just because, you know, if you can't draw from your own experience and, you know, the Torched Artist thing is kind of a prevalent myth, but it's like there's so much out there that you can pull from that you don't need to pull from, you know, a traumatic experience or even mm -hmm. fabricate one. But So there's a lot of fictional stuff, but what kind of fictional influences have you drawn from other than, like, Dead to Me? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just, a like, a big lover of TV in general, for sure. Um, but I do, I do love, like, short stories. Mm. Um, Alice Munro, for sure. And just like Southern kind of like the Southern canon of literature was a formative influence for sure. Like Eudora Welty and all that kind of stuff. Um, Appalachian writers like Lee Smith or mm. Silas House. Um, yeah, but I think narrative, you know, I, I agree with you as far as having like that outside influence or just I think to take take existing art, whether it's like painting or TV, movies, literature, poems. Um, and kind of transmogrify it into like a different art form mm. is sometimes a really um, useful creative exercise, like just to do it to for the craft element. Um, or there's you know a phrase that jumps out, like um, yeah, I've definitely like stolen lines of dialogue and put them in songs before, you know. Oh, same. Um, just because of the way it sounds to your ear, you're like that's music. Yeah. Even if someone's speaking it. Yeah, I've yeah. got him. There's a song called Rock Ferry I've got, and I've literally taken a line from True Detective where it said, this is a memory of a town. And I just was like, that's mine now. <laughs> yeah. That's a song. Yeah, I took um, the hook of Bones. I took from like an episode of like Call the Midwife or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, that like Vanessa Redgrave, like voiceover. That's just like super weeby. Um, I, what I love about what I do love about songwriting is that I think it, it there's something about it that lets you get away with stuff that would look really cheesy on a page, mm. you know, where you can kind of sell it or find the truth in it. And then you like look at the words and you're like, this is awful. But if for some reason it really works, mm. I think that's kind of, kind of magic. Yeah. No, it isn't with kind of like some falls of you and working on anything 
else new lately like do you have an idea for a record in the future yeah i've i've considered just like recording an ep at home you know because i have my gear out and i'm working on other stuff but um i don't know i've been kind of writing some about just more family stuff hmm. um yeah not really necessarily writing to any end goal but but processing a few things um I had been, so before the pandemic hit, like literally before the pandemic hit, I was planning on recording a record with one of the bands I play in and I'm kind of, you know, one of two songwriters in the trio. Mm. So I had a lot of songs for that, that had this home and it's kind of like a, they call it hot folk. Um, so it's like banjo, fiddle, guitar, upright bass, like kind mm. of more of that, you know, old time sound. Um, and I had three or four songs that we were planning to record for that, that, you know, I, I don't know if and when that record's going to happen. And I really like those songs. So I'm contemplating recording them solo just to have them mm. kind of for people to listen to. Because um, like I said, like, I, I felt really good about them. And it kind of felt like I was like sending my strongest stuff to this project. And this band was going to do amazing things. And now it's like, none of us really want to ever leave the house ever again. <laughs> so um yeah, and so some of those were like, like I have this song called Woman's Work that I really like, which is kind of a reinterpreting all those traditional folk songs where kind of a man goes traveling and doing all these things and, and wondering like the woman who's left behind at home, what's her perspective? You know, mm. does she feel trapped? Does she feel resentful? Um, I really like that one a lot. And, and people always at live shows really dug it. So I might, yeah, make a little EP of just unreleased stuff that I'm proud of and just more showcasing the songwriting, maybe producing it a little less mm. than Jigsaw Puzzles. Oh, awesome. And with that project, do you approach songwriting differently? Is it less of like personal things? And obviously you look at those tropes and other songs, like you've looked at the murder ballad trope and you've mm -hmm. looked at the guy traveling. Is there like, is there a mindset to that where you see these cliches in music and you're like, why if we spun these? Yeah, I would say with, with that particular band, um, After Jack, definitely the stuff that I'm bringing forward is less personal. So if something feels like really intensely specific or personal, I tend to save it for myself. Mm. Um, just cause I really want like final say on like the production and just what's done with it versus like the other band. Like I'll even be like, I wrote this song and I really like it, but you can sing lead on it and that's cool. You know? Mm. Um, yeah. And things that'll more fall into like be an interesting twist on an existing trope or um, really lend themselves to kind of more of that traditional sound. Oh, cool. And the first song I listened to you was um, We'll Eat the Rich for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I fucking love. Thank what you. Was, what was the, like, it's kind of glib or, you know, reductive to say what was the meaning behind that song, but how did that first come about to, you know, was it the yeah. lyrics or? I mean, I think I, well, as far as, like, I write lyrics and melody at the same time always. To me, they're inextricable, mm. but um just as part of my, my process um but i think like many people uh my age i've progressively radicalized over the past like five years um like the other day i was like talking to my mom and i was like mom i'm a communist um <laughs> she was like i still love you um but but yeah just like having you know feeling like there's so much i think generational anger right now that's absolutely valid and and trying to make it not like I mean, you use the word glib, but like tongue in cheek, but also completely serious. Yeah. Um, but just to find like a little bit of like the joy in that fight, I think was, was sort of the inspiration for that. And it honestly just started like, I, I have a friend and I joked that I was going to write him a Christmas song called We'll Eat the, Eat the Rich for Christmas. 
like for years and mm. I finally just sat down and made it happen so um it was just like kind of a gift from my, my friend but as I played it at live shows like people are like super into it you know it kind of became the sing-along and um yeah it's always a fun one to finish on and sometimes I play it where I'm like am I gonna get in trouble but I don't care <laughs> so yeah. it makes me feel a little closer to my punk roots for sure no definitely and that was one that resonated because it, it it does have that like punk protest to it that I'm like all over especially for like acoustic things and like it is that generational thing where it just seems that people are in a state of they look around and they realize this isn't how things should be and I'm just hoping that we get to the point where we can actually like realize what we can do and actually make these things change for the better yeah for sure yeah and like you know that's one of the benefits to me of not being in the road this year is that I've been able to invest more in like community organizing mm. and getting with people who are already doing the work where I live and yeah instead of just singing about it trying to do a little bit more to help out yeah no I like I did a deep dive on your um twitter today oh boy and, <laughs> and I saw one thing where it was like you knocked on doors for is it hrc is that clinton Oh, well, that was a very long time ago. Well, I yeah, was gonna I, wouldn't, say because, I wouldn't do that again, but... <laughs> I was going to say, because that was, like, in your more establishment-friendly youth, and you got fuck all in return. Was that kind yeah. of... Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, it was kind of... Yeah, and where I, where I live, it's, like, to even be, you know, like, big tent Democrat is, is relatively far left. Mm. Um, and and it, it did feel like, at that point, like, the 2016 election was something that mattered. Mm. So helping that fight was something that mattered. And then, you know, um, there've been, I don't know if the news about the governor of Virginia and his blackface scandal broke where, where you live. No. Um, so yeah, the, that, I think that particularly the, the statewide politics, uh, probably disillusioned, disillusioned me more than anything national. Um, and the mountain Valley pipeline fight, Mm. Um, so I don't know if like pipeline news is a thing over there, but basically they're, they're building this natural gas pipeline that's going through West Virginia and Virginia. And I think North Carolina and people have been fighting it for over three years. Like people like in living in trees for hundreds of days. Mm. Yeah. It's really hardcore. Um, but it, it's the type of thing where like the democratic party in Virginia could have stopped it anytime they wanted to, yeah. but they're, they're in the pocket of business and big oil as well. Like. So things like that have definitely um, disillusioned me a lot more than, than anything else as far as, like, Dominion Energy in Virginia owns everybody regardless of party, you know? Yeah, because I was going to say, because obviously you're doing this community work and stuff now, but from, like, what I read there, it's, like, a disillusionment. So it's, like, how do you stay optimistic about this? Because I remember, like, since I didn't used to vote when I first could vote when I turned 18, and then I started getting more actively involved in it, but since just before 2016 every single thing i voted in has come out the way i didn't vote mm. so it was like brexit <laughs> governments councillors yeah. no matter what it was it's always been the other side and it's like well what the fuck is the point point? and i remember last year during the george floyd stuff i started one of the petitions about um the uk was importing all the riot gear and rubber bullets and stuff and that picked up a load of traction and it was i was dealing with like the campaign against arms trade and stuff and then that fizzled out and it, nothing happened. And it's one of those things where it's like, how do you stay optimistic in this kind of thing when in the face of everything, it just seems to keep, you know, shutting you down? Yeah, that's a that's a great heavy question. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I honestly think for me, shifting away from electoralism was really helpful for mm. my mental health in that 
realizing that, like, I, I still go and vote in every election, um, just because to me it feels like harm reduction, but recognizing that's five minutes out of my day and it's not, it's the beginning yeah. of, of the work. Um, whereas I think sometimes the way that politics is talked about in the United States, it's all about elections as opposed to like, what are we doing to help each other? Yeah. So for me, things like, um, like getting involved with like the local, like jail support and bail fund or trying to, you know, connect with people and things like mutual aid, you know, where like, how can we peer to peer meet each other's needs in a way that the state isn't? Mm. That's what gets me hopeful and like connecting with people like on the ground you know like going to a protest and like seeing other people and being in that community mm. um yeah that's like anytime that i get off like i'm kind of tired and i get on a call and like things happen and we meet and share those values and i realize i'm not alone in that like mm. that that makes me feel optimistic and so that's like you know to tie it back to the music that's where like when i play we'll eat the rich for christmas at a show and people start singing along i'm like yeah like we there's more of us than there are of them, you know, yeah. like never forget that. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm hoping for to, it will eventually switch because of how not necessarily radicalized, but how important seems things seem to be now. And the younger generation do seem more like politically minded. Like I'm hoping that in the next like five or so years, it's going to swing back. Obviously like my, one of my dreams is to live long enough to see the monarchy get abolished over here. Mm, that's like word. what I'm holding up for. <laughs> But it's one of those things where you kind of see the shift and what's happening now is that clash of idealism and, you know, the old guard trying to just like hold on to everything. And that's where a lot of the conflict is. But it's I'm just hoping that it's eventually they'll have to let go because of age or whatever. But it is one of those things to try and stay optimistic during all this. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, spite is a fantastic motivator. It is. I think, I think spite is a perfectly great reason to, to get up in the morning and fight your good fight. So, yeah, sometimes it's hope, sometimes it's spite, whatever keeps you going. And sometimes it's just taking time to rest and take care of yourself. Like, you know, don't let yourself get burned out and feel like it's all on your shoulders because there mm. are more of us than there are on them, and that means that we can take a break too. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's one of the big things was I just, like, don't engage with people on Facebook and stuff because it's not – Big a battlefield mode. that like actually changes anything when you're it's never like, gonna win yeah. yeah so that was one of the big things for me was like any political discourse on facebook i'm just not engaging in because i don't see the point when i remember when i talked about how i voted labor in the first like 2016 elections and i put up a thing being like this is just to try for something better and some guy just blasted me and was like delete me then and i just deleted him yeah. <laughs> word yeah i mean there's definitely you know people that I've cut out of my life and don't engage with just because, yeah, like, fuck fascists, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's weird that that seems to be a political statement now, but I was talking to a guy like Eli Gardner where it's it's not even political, it's just morals. And that's where I think the danger lies now is people think it's a political issue when it's a moral issue. And it's been so cleverly worded that people think it's politics when it's just not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the the idea of politics is like a sports game where you're rooting for your team or the other team or like it, where it's all, uh, what's the word? It's all like conjecture, you know, mm. for some people and it's not materially affecting their lives. Like yeah. it's always going to be a different conversation for sure. Yeah. Oh, it definitely is. But, you know, we're coming up to the hour and I don't want to keep you too long, but what are kind of your plans? Obviously you want to start recording demos things. Is there a, you know 
once the pandemic eases off, are you going to look at recording more or are you going to come over to the UK? Because I definitely want to see you live at some point. Yeah, I definitely want to go back to the UK. Um, have, you know, friends mm. I want to see and, and places I'd love to play. And... Have you played over here before? I haven't. I've just been like on holiday. Uh, um, where have you been time. over on a, a visit? We just went to um, London and saw some shows in the West End and then a couple of days in Bristol, which was oh, lovely. Cool. Like saw like a silent film festival at the Old Vic. It was amazing. Mm. Had delicious vegan food. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it was a really nice trip just as a tourist, but um, definitely made me want to go go play some gigs as well. Um, yeah, so I record I record like home studio, and um, I actually I did personhood at a studio, but hmm. Jigsaw Puzzles and Pink Wine was entirely self produced at home. Um, so I'm not necessarily wanting to you know invest in working with other producers or big studios just because hmm. of my ambitions. Um, that can be a really helpful thing as far as like industry connections, you know, to have like yeah. a producer who's in this band or whatever. Um, so definitely wanting to keep just having autonomy over my recordings mm. and the arrangements, which has been really helpful just because my early experiences were very much like older white men making decisions about my songs and feeling like I didn't have ownership about mm. the end product. Like when I was a teenager or early in my twenties, so for me, yeah, re reclaiming that. And then um, locally, I try and work and, and produce some with like other women artists so that they feel really comfortable oh, cool. recording. Because um, I think it's a stressful process for anyone, but especially with, sometimes with a gender dynamic, you can really feel like discounted or like you're not listened to or appreciated. Mm. So working with them to have, you know, a product they feel like is like songs that they feel like represent them and are true to what they sound live and like they feel really proud of. Um, yeah, so that's you know another good thing about being home more is that I have more time to mix and record a little bit. Oh, cool! No, that's amazing, and obviously, um, you've got all that coming up. And is there anything you kind of binge watching at the moment? I'm like, I think I've just hammered four seasons of Parks and Recreation in the last like two weeks. Oh yeah, I, I watched that one on air. It was a good one. Um, we were definitely on the Wandavision train with oh. everybody else. I I feel like I need like a new show to really get into. There's nothing I've really been like sitting and watching in its entirety mm. so if you have any suggestions I totally welcome them yeah i've not really been watching that. like have you seen um, ragnarok on netflix the uh, danish show no that's really good it's i think it's danish it's set i think near iceland and it's these two kids move to a new town and it's kind of the reincarnation of thor and loki but it's not and it's like it's kind of like cw-esque like high school drama mixed with okay. Norse mythology and it was amazing for one so kind of campy yeah so but that was really enjoyable so i'm hoping i'm looking forward to season two of that and the soundtrack for that was really good for ragnarok but um at the moment there's not really been much else that i've been really a fan of i'm waiting for the superman and lois thing to come out at some point in the uk so you're big into like i know, I know you and rachel talked about comics a lot you're big into like superheroes and that kind of thing yeah i've got um all my artwork here but um i, I love like the superhero kind of stuff i've been into that for years and obviously uh, netflix announced all the red wall stuff that'll eventually oh yeah soon yeah a kid i went to elementary school with got to meet brian jakes because he was like really ill and fortunately recovered but as part of that like got like a make-a-wish type situation I got no to way. meet him yeah like i'm i'm so jealous of everyone that got to meet brian jakes because i didn't realize he lived across the water from me because That's like crazy. i'm like liverpool based yeah. and i never knew I could have gone to like I assume he would have done a book signing around here at some point, but I didn't realize that until after he passed that he actually was local to me. I was gutted about that. But I'm really looking forward to Red Wall stuff on Netflix and at the moment like 
with all the music stuff, I dropped every single TV show I was watching and just stopped everything. And now it's kind of like with my partner and things, I have the time or I try and make the time to actually sit mm-hmm. down with her and chill out and switch off and actually watch something. So it's been interesting to try and get back into TV shows. Like uh, she'll be watching Vikings. And I stopped that like season three or something. I'm like, what's happened now? And like, everyone's dead. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. Yeah. It's like, I have to catch up on a lot of shows real quick. Yeah. Yeah. I've found that my capacity to pay attention has definitely diminished some with just COVID brain, but um, wanting to watch some, like some films that have come out recently, like Nomadland. Hopefully mm. I'll watch soon, but yeah, yeah, maybe we'll write some songs about it. We'll see. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll let you go, but thanks so much for making yeah, the time. It was so lovely to meet you. Yeah, definitely. And uh, hopefully we'll get to do this again. If you have anything out, obviously you'll sure be thing. welcome yeah. on this in a hobby and hopefully I'll get to see you in the UK. Give a shout if you're ever coming this way, for sure. And that was episode 30 of Into the Van, Into the Bag. Thank you so much for listening. Please go check out Catherine the Great's music. It is fucking phenomenal. You will not be disappointed when you check out her music. I'm also listening to Mortifero's new record, Death Ballads. That's out on Van Records now, so go check that out. Please keep supporting the podcast. Leave a review on iTunes or Apple Music or wherever you listen to the podcast. It helps loads. And yeah, guys, keep supporting music, keep supporting podcasts, keep supporting everything you love because it makes a difference to the people doing it. And I hope it makes a difference to you supporting it as well. Until next time, guys. Peace.